You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. On April 16, 1927, Josef Ratzinger was born in a little village in Bavaria, Germany's southernmost state. Raised in a Catholic family and traditionally Catholic Bavaria, it isn't surprising that he and his elder brother Georg went to seminary and were ordained as priest. What is remarkable is Father Ratzinger's trajectory from priesthood to academia and into the church's hierarchy as archbishop, cardinal, and pope, and most remarkable, his retirement from the prelacy of Rome to become the first Pope Emeritus. Throughout that journey, Ratzinger, now Benedict XVI, has been committed to the task of teaching in the university, in the congregation of the doctrine of the faith, and in the papal office. And while Benedict XVI has always been a distinctively Roman Catholic theologian, his commitment to an unshakable truth founded in the scriptures means that even Protestants can learn much from him. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Tim Perry, adjunct professor of theology at St. Paul University and Trinity School for Ministry, and editor of The Theology of Benedict XVI, A Protestant Appreciation, published by Lexham Press. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Perry. Thanks very much, David. Good to be with you today. Well, I'd like to start with some backstory. How did this okay. how did this project originate? Um, I've been uh, out of the academy for for quite a while. I moved into parish ministry and kind of left that that part of my life behind, except for some uh, some adjuncting and sessional work. Uh, and a former student of mine, um, who's now an assisting bishop in the diocese of the Arctic with the Anglican Church of Canada, uh, wrote to me and, and said uh, I should. Uh, I should edit a book with uh, with Lexham Press, and he he pitched it, uh, and he he tag teamed with another former student of mine who works for the press, and I actually declined, um, but they persisted, and uh, the result was uh, was this book. Um, they uh, they thought it would be good because I, I had done a similar project on uh, John Paul II, um, back around uh, I think. Uh, 2006, 2007, somewhere in there, um, and and so this was was kind of a, a natural um, segue. Uh, that was a natural segue into this project, and and they thought I'd be good for it, and and so eventually I relented, and I'm I'm glad I did because it's it came together really well, and I'm, I'm really pleased with uh, with how it's gone. As I was looking at the uh, the write up for this book on Lexham's website. Uh, before I had received it and saw the the titles of the essays and the authors, uh, it made me wonder what what is it like to recruit writers for this project, especially this pack of writers. Um, it, it was surprisingly easy. Uh, I, I I learned with with the John Paul project that uh, you know the the worst that people can say is no, so you might as well aim high. And uh, and that's. Uh. Uh, that's what I did, and I was really, really su- uh, pleased and surprised that in the in the first round of invitations, um, very, very few people declined. So the the uh, the people that you have there um, 
are the people uh, who agreed right off the bat uh, largely to do it. I think there, there might have been two exceptions, uh, but I was really, really pleased with the uh, with the diversity of, of the authors and with the, the uh, caliber. And I, I think they, they all brought their A-game, so I was really, really pleased with it. Yeah, I, I too was impressed with uh, the range of the range of writers here and the degree to which uh, several of these uh, several of these authors are are prominent in different Protestant traditions that uh, aren't always publicly on the same page. But to hear them, mm-hmm. you know, engaging uh, with the Pope Emeritus in this way was was really really interesting to me. Your introductory essay deals with some of the contradictory reputations that the Pope mm-hmm. Emeritus has among different parties of observers. That includes Protestant perceptions. So how do you distinguish between the perceptions of Benedict XVI and the reality? How best ought we to think about him? Um, I, th- I think there are elements of truth in uh in the, in the perceptions, um, I, th- I think they they each. I mean, I, I talk about two in the introductory essay. Um, you know, as, as kind of uh, I contrasted um, the uh, kind of the popular image of uh, the Pope Emeritus as God's Rottweiler, um, to use the uh, really unflattering uh, image uh, that his critics um, painted. Uh, I contrasted that with with my own perception. As you know, kind of a faithful sheepdog. Mm. Um, I, I think I think both of those, you know, capture the truth, capture a, a facet of the man, um, and uh, in in that sense, I think it's it's easier for me as as a Protestant to, uh, you know, e- even though there are uh, profound disagreements between uh, the Pope Emeritus and I. Um, on all the traditional issues, um, it's it's easy because of that distance to have uh, a greater sense of appreciation for his work, uh, both his th- theological work and and his work as a theological gatekeeper um, for decades under uh, Pope John Paul II. Um, but I, I think you know, I mean, as, as a Protestant, I never I never fell afoul of him in his official capacity. Uh, and uh, and I never would. So it's it's easier for me to be um, uh, appreciative uh, of, of his work in perhaps ways that um, people who disagree with him, but who are because of their their church connections closer to him, uh, might m- might find harder to do. So I think I think both pictures um, uh, capture facets of the truth. Um, never. Nevertheless, I, I think the the image of the you know the dour heresy hunting uh, German cardinal um, really uh, got got more press, I think, than 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 the other image. Uh, uh, at least until he was uh, at least until he was elevated to the papacy, and I think in a way that's really unfair. Um, I, uh, I know uh, a couple of people who have uh, met the the, uh, the Pope Emeritus uh, and and who simply describe him in ways that um, don't 
simply aren't aren't captured by the uh, kind of the the, the strong uh, gatekeeper kind of kind of imagery. Uh, he's a quiet man, a shy man, a retiring man who wanted, you know, nothing but to be uh, an academic priest and and uh, you know write write books on the church fathers and scriptural exegesis uh, and contribute to the uh, the life of the church in that way. Uh, and you know, for all kinds of reasons, he was never able to do that. And I I hope that um, this little book, in in a lot of ways, helps to to give that that different image uh, a bit of life. Um, I th- I think he deserves to be uh, reckoned with as a theological thinker uh, on his own, uh, apart from his work uh, for the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith, apart from his. Um, role as the Pope. I think he, he deserves to be reckoned with uh, as a theologian across Christian communities, as someone really who matters. Uh, and I, I hope that that, that, uh, that happens. Excellent. I, I love the sheepdog imagery that you developed in that, that introductory essay. Uh, I remember uh, very shortly after uh, uh, John Paul II's death when uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger was uh, confirmed in that position that uh, I, I started seeing bumper stickers that said, I love my German shepherd. <laughs> and uh, I, I haven't seen those. That's great. Uh, I thought that was just uh, a lovely pun. <laughs> yeah, it is. The major, one of the major reasons uh, that more theologically conservative Protestants have respected the Pope Emeritus is his resistance to the irrationality, skepticism, the relativism that characterizes late modernity and post modernity, which he, which he lived through and observed much of. Um, what is his stance on faith and reason, and why would those outside his Roman Catholic flock um, do well to heed those calls to rationality? Um. Well, I mean, his stance on faith and reason is is that of a uh, you know a, a, a traditional uh, a traditional Catholic, namely that um, Christian faith, uh, in addition to um, being, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of thera- therapeutically. Um, satisfying being a, a way of, of soul care. In addition to that, it, it also uh, makes claims about the world, uh, claims that it believes are true, um, and uh, true not just for uh, certain people, and uh, true not just for um, uh, a long time ago, but. Uh, but true in a universal and abiding sense. These are claims to the truth that, uh, if they are in fact true, apply to everybody, everywhere, all the time. Um, some of these truths, I think uh, the Pope would say, um, are available to uh, reason. Others of them are available only uh, because God has revealed them, God has disclosed them. Um, but even these revealed truths are not uh, against reason. Um, they can be rationally propounded, set forth, understood, and defended. 
and you know it's it's his deep conviction that christian faith is is not the property of one particular ethnicity uh but is in fact um you know a, the the saving work of god uh, that embraces um, all of humanity in Christ, and it's it's a claim about uh, events that actually happened. It's a claims about the deep truths of being human. It's claims about the deep truths of ultimate reality, uh, and as such, these claims uh, can be investigated. They are uh, rational, reasonable claims, um, and uh, and I think you know m- traditional Protestants whatever disagreements they have about the particulars of some of those claims uh, would recognize in that insistence on really fundamental realities about truth and falsehood would recognize in uh, the Pope Emeritus um, someone who is a conversation partner, someone with whom, you know, the disagreements would make sense. Uh, if you've if you've read the essays, uh, you know that uh, these these essays are are sympathetic to be sure, and they're appreciative to be sure, but they're they're not fawning. And and where the authors um, demur uh, from what uh, what the Pope Emeritus has written, they they say so, and they can say so quite forcefully. Uh, and but they can only say so because they share with him really basic convictions about the nature of theological truth claims. They share with him the belief that those claims matter enough to be debated about. Uh, and so that I think that makes us natural conversation partners, um, sometimes in a way that we, uh, we're not so much natural conversation partners with people within our own church denominations. Because you know there are kind of surface similarities that mask really more basic disagreements uh, within our churches, whereas with the Pope we have surface disagreements, but a really deep underlying shared set of convictions from which we can explore both agreements and disagreements. Yeah, and I hope uh, as we develop uh, this through uh, our, our conversation that some of those points of contact and how what kinds of conversations can have through that will be uh, will be explored you mentioned in our interactions before this interview that the uh, the essay by Ben Myers that actually develops this relationship between uh, truth and faith and reason um, that that we've just been exploring uh, that that essay had led to some conversation um, would you like to uh, shed a little light on that comment that you'd made to me? Sure. I, I think uh, Ben's essay is, uh, it's, it's, it's certainly, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like saying you have a favorite kit, but um, you know, it, it, <laughs> it, it, is, it is, I think, in the collection, and I include my own work in this assessment. I think it's my favorite essay. Um, there are some others that come close. We might have a chance to talk about those a little bit later on. Um, but but it's my favorite because it really gets at uh, the the core issue of um, of truth and falsehood in uh, in theology and uh, Ben's argument um, is that 
uh, you know, someone like uh, Martin Luther, who is, just as an aside, someone for whom the Pope Emeritus has had it a decades-long uh, interest, but someone like Martin Luther has more in common with uh, the Pope Emeritus um, precisely because they both believe that there are central issues of truth and falsehood at stake uh, than um, you know, many contemporary Protestants who are quite happy talking about uh, traditions of interpretation um, quite happy talking about uh, uh, pastoral care and, and therapy and, and avoiding uh, thereby the really fundamental questions of truth and falsehood. And, um, you know, ben, Ben's essay, I think, sets out uh, a shared commitment to the truth in a kind of a you know, a, a tough-minded Catholicism and a, a tough-minded confessional Protestantism. He, he he sets out that shared commitment to the truth in a really illuminating way. And uh, as a result, uh, you know, that essay was chosen to be the lead essay, and I think it's it's a good lead essay as a result. I really appreciated that as a way of uh, starting the collection off because I remember uh, I, I had just uh, I, I had just started graduate school. Uh, when uh, Benedict XVI was, uh, assumed uh, the See of Rome. And I remember at that time reading some things that he had said or, or confirmed um, about, uh, about Protestants and some of my Protestant friends being very, very offended. And I found it heartening because I was like, ah, a pope who is Catholic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I had that reaction too. I mean, with his with his predecessor first. I mean, it might just be, be because I'm I'm older than than you are. Mm -hmm. I don't know, yeah. um, but certainly with, with with John Paul and 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 then with with Benedict. Um, uh, I know I know Timothy George uh, has talked about you know one of his friends describing. Uh, John Paul II as a pope who know, knew how to pope. Um, mm. Certainly, I, th I think that's it, that uh, that's that's true with with uh, his successor also, at least in the sense of the teaching office. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that and that comes from his years, you know, as as uh, the head of the of the CDF. I mean, it, it was his job to um, uh, hew close to. Uh, hew close to the truth and uh, and you know bring people back in line when when that was necessary um, and it's some, something I certainly appreciate about him as well uh, uh, i I like to think that you know with uh, with the Pope emeritus, I know what the fight is about if that makes sense oh absolutely. Um, uh, and and uh, that's that's just uh, that's just not the case with um, uh, with others anymore. Uh, and I, I don't mean that to sound harsh or or, or dismissive or or mean spirited in any way. Um, I, I think it, it's just reflective of the reality and that that we've come to. Um, you know, in the in the 1920s, I think in his book Liberalism, J. Gresham Machen 
made the point in the introduction that um, confessional Protestants and Catholics have more in common with each other than either do with uh, liberals, and that liberalism was in fact becoming a different religion. Um, and I, I think Machen's judgment is uh, is correct. Uh, and so, you know, we I, I, I share a bond with with the Pope Emeritus that perhaps I don't um, with uh, with others from within my own ecclesial connections, precisely for that reason. Following up on what you just said, in his concluding essay, or or his afterward at least to the essay, Matthew Levering raises a question that he had been asked, which is why do evangelical Protestants want to engage conservative Catholics like Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger, instead of liberal Catholics? You know, why, the question, why not dialogue with Catholics who are more open to embracing liturgical or ecclesia, ecclesiological changes that would open closer communion with Protestants? I, I feel as if what you've just said about uh, how conservative Protestants feel about Benedict XVI is kind of an answer to that, that he's, even where his arguments differ, he's arguing in the same register or on the same field. He's in within the same court following generally the same rules, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's exactly right. Um, I, I really like the idea of a you know a, the, on the, in the same register. I like like the idea of a, a musical metaphor where we're we're working uh, within a shared conceptuality that makes conversations possible. And uh, I, th- I think it's it's one of the the tragedies of um, Christian uh, faith and theology in late modernity that you know we're, we we need to start asking the question whether the conversation is even possible anymore in in some uh, in some theologizing um, and and certainly uh, that we can converse with the Pope Emeritus is a reason for hope that at least some conversations can continue to take place. Well, let's consider at least a few of the conversations that took place in this essay. Okay. One of the traits that I thought was really admirable about this project and its engagement with Benedict XVI's thought is that y'all actually wrote about teachings that have been really fierce points of contention. This wasn't just a let's find the things that we agree about. It was also mm-hmm. let's read him when he's teaching on those points that have been the battlefields, but mm-hmm. nonetheless ask, what can we still learn? Um, your essay, uh, the title Behold the Handmaid of the Lord, was was one of those. So mm-hmm. what can Protestants learn about Mary from the Pope Emeritus? Well, I, I'm going to need to preface my answer uh just with with a little bit of an acknowledgement that while you know while I might think Protestants can learn a whole lot, um, I certainly can't you know can't speak for all Protestants on on that matter. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know when when I read even even good uh, Protestant polemic on on uh, Catholic. Uh, Marian doctrine and devotion. Um, 
it uh, it almost sounds like um, uh, you know the the second the second Vatican Council's declaration on Mary, um, Pope Paul the sixth liturgical Marian reforms that followed up on that. Um, it sounds like those things never happened. And so I, I, I wanted to, to write an essay on Mary, first of all, um, to show to a Protestant audience what, a, a, you know, a deeply traditional Catholic Mariology looks like after um, those uh, groundbreaking reforms. Uh, and I think, you know, Benedict is a really good uh, example of that. Um, his little book on Mary that I, I interact with is is very, very deliberate in its attempt to uh, bring Marian practice, uh, the fullness of Marian practice within uh, the channels provided by the Holy Scriptures and the Church Fathers. Um, so, you know, he continuously, continually refers in his Marian work to the Bible. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, many Protestants who have uh, an interest in uh, in Mary would be surprised by. Um, sim- just you know, simply that he engages the scriptures to the degree that he does. Um, that he engages the scriptures when he's talking about uh, the modern dogmas, you know, immaculate conception and bodily assumption. Um, is, I think, something that would uh, surprise many Protestant readers. Um, Now, Mary's, I think, always going to be a bone of contention um, between our communities. Um, You know, from the second generation of the Reformation, she, uh, Mary, has come to embody the Catholic response to all of the solas, and so there's, you know, this this essay is not about saying, oh no, it's okay. Catholics really don't believe what you think they do. Uh, sometimes that's true, uh, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes no, they really do believe what you think they do, and 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 part of the disagreement uh, abides as a result of that. Um, but you know, to to say that that Catholic thinking on Mary hasn't evolved or changed or developed over the last 500 years simply isn't true. And with Benedict, we have someone who wants to engage, or to articulate rather, the Marian tradition, the full Marian tradition, but within the parameters set by the Second Vatican Council and by Pope Paul VI document, Cultus Marialis. Uh, and, and that means an accentuation of the scriptures. That means an accentuation of the earliest fathers on Mary. That means an accentuation of, uh, on Mary as... Uh, a model disciple, rather than as you know, a, a goddess, for lack of a better uh, word. And so, so giving readers a chance to to see that uh, and to see it coming from the pen of a pope, uh, just as a way a way to kind of open up space for for thinking uh, about uh, about Mary uh, under the guidance of a Catholic writer. I think is a good a good exercise. Um, and I, ironically enough, um, in the essay, the, the most important thing the Pope teaches us, I think, the conclusion I came to anyway, 
in the essay on Mary, the most important thing the Pope teaches us is not so much what to think about Mary, but how to read the Old Testament. Um, mm. His uh, his scriptural work uh, is is ext- an extensive engagement with Old Testament uh, themes and passages as a way to illuminate the gospel, um, which is something that you know a, a lot of I think. Uh, uh, average evangelical in the pew people uh, sim- simply don't do. Um, you know, the the Old Testament, if it's referred to as all, at all, is kind of interesting history or good for sermon illustrations or uh, uh, have to be rewritten for the sake of the kids kind of stories, but they really don't measure up to the Gospels, the letters of Paul, the later New Testament or whatever. And what Benedict does in his work on Mary, I found anyway, was was he simply reads the Bible as as one book, um, and uh, and reads the, you know the Old Testament typologically, um, to use the old uh, saying from Augustine, you know what uh, the the, uh, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed, um, and so he he engages in the Old Testament with the themes of the Old Testament as a way to deepen uh, his understanding of Mary in a way that's thoroughly biblical. And, and, and that's a point, a larger point about how to read the Bible and about how to read the Old Testament especially, um, that I think invites Protestants into a, a deeper conversation, not so much with Benedict, but with uh, the roots of their own traditions about how to read the Old Testament, and and I think that's a conversation worth worth having, just kind of in house. Um, uh, I'm 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 worried by the kind of creeping uh, Marcionism, uh, in particularly the evangelical movement that that skips over or ignores or really doesn't know what to do with uh, the Old Testament. And and Benedict uh, in his writings on Mary, even if we disagree with the conclusions models a way to engage the Old Testament that is serious, that is scholarly, that is seriously Christian, uh, and that needs to be simply, you know, looked at and, and considered um, as a way to teach us how to, how to read our Bibles. I especially appreciated the way that you brought that out, because it also lends a certain plausibility, not just to how can, uh, how can certain ways of articulating who Mary is and what Mary represents. Uh, it, not just articul- articulating that those ideas um, can have biblical uh, support, but also that they're being drawn from the scripture that would have been available to not only first century Christians, but just before that to someone like mm-hmm. Mary herself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, so that someone as 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 steeped in uh, the scriptures as Mary is, um, you know, when she bursts into song, it's you know, it's an amazing gestalt psalm. Absolutely, it is, yeah. And you know, b- being able being able to to engage uh, Marian th- uh, the the Marian doctrines as an Old Testament theology that would have been available. Is mm-hmm. I think really, uh, really helpful, really useful. Oh, good! I'm glad it was for you. 
the other essays, you said earlier that it was like picking a favorite child, and I don't want you to necessarily say, you know, and this was my favorite, and I shall hang the medal around it, and all the rest <laughs> shall be hissed from the room. Um, yeah. But what are some of the standouts that might pique our listeners' attention? Maybe surprise them or uh, uh, some impressive names. Uh, I saw at least one funny title. Okay. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I'll, I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll ask. I'll ask you then. What's the funny title? We'll go, sorry, we'll start I, there. I, I laughed when I saw when I saw Carl Truman's title. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, and and that's that's a really uh, it's a fun place to start. I mean, Ben's Ben's essay is is the lead essay for a reason, and it uh, it is it is my favorite in the collection. But but Carl's uh, Carl covers similar themes. Um, you know, for for listeners, the t- the title is "Is the Pope Catholic?" Um, uh, Carl's covers similar themes uh, uh, around. Um, Ecumenical in, in engagement, and it, and it, and it's 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 worth a it's worth um, serious consideration as well. Um, one of the things I did not know when uh, we asked Carl to join the project was of uh, Professor Truman's friendship with um, Archbishop Charles Chaput, uh, the Emeritus Archbishop of Philadelphia. Um, they'd been they'd uh, struck up a friendship. Um, for, for quite some time and, and have modeled in that friendship the very kinds of conversations that that um, I think all the contributors and I as the editor want um, this collection to foster and uh, it you know Carl uh, was very kind to uh, pass along a couple of uh, uh, copies of the uh, of the uh, book to the Archbishop uh, who in turn sent one to uh, to uh, the Pope Emeritus himself, and uh, we were very pleased when he when he wrote uh, wrote Lexham Press back and and uh, thanked us for the uh, thanked us for the collection. Um, so Carl's essay is is, is good. Um, it, it it gets at kind of similar themes as Ben, but does so Ben's, but does so from the perspective of um, ecumenical engagement. Um, another essay that that I enjoy uh, is uh, uh, Peter Lighthart's on uh, on liturgy and the Bible. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. You know the, the Catholic liturgy, uh, certainly as uh, Benedict uh, wants it to be, uh, envisages it in his classic book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. Looks nothing like you know your your Sunday morning mega church service, at least. You know, before COVID, um, uh, and 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 uh, you know, so so it you 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 might want to ask, well, what does it does you know Ratzinger have anything to say um, to to an audience for whom a very different kind of of uh, worship expression is is normative and and Lightheart, I think, very persuasively argues that he he does in terms of. Um, reverence in terms of participation, in terms of the, ironically enough, you know, the centrality of the word in worship. Um, mm. So Lightheart's essay is is uh, is a good one, and um, I'm just I'm pleased as punch that my former student Joey Royal um, I think knocked it out of the park with his essay on the Eucharist. Uh, I just think that's that's a real little gem in there. 
Uh, but the, you know they're they're all good, and, and I could I could mention them all, but I guess I guess I got to stop there. Those are the those are the four that I really really like. I was really happy to see two uh, two friends of mine who also uh, I have interviewed on this podcast uh, multiple times, uh, Kevin Van Hooser and Fred mm-hmm. Sanders. Uh, mm-hmm. Both had contributions, and uh, I enjoyed their essays because, you know, uh, Van Hooser's essay is a Van Hooser essay, and Sanders' essay is a <laughs> Sanders essay. <laughs> yeah. But yep. I, there, there was something just delightful to me in opening this volume and seeing so many names that I had recognized, people who I admire in as, as thinkers in uh, traditions that I uh, find myself connected to. Um, mm-hmm. But seeing them interacting with Benedict XVI, it was uh, I don't know that 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 was really that was really kind of uh, kind of exciting for me. It, it almost as if uh, like a family reunion where both sides are invited, and I'm seeing great uncles who haven't necessarily met each other, but I've sort of known them. <laughs> seeing right. them interact there's something yeah. something like that for me but yeah you know. well good good <laughs> maybe that's not the best metaphor but that's what i'm gonna run no it works for me Excellent. yeah well i think as we as we look towards uh the the end of our conversation i'd like to return to levering's uh afterward and his comment but particularly the way, uh, what does this look like going ahead? How might, how do you see this volume um, providing a model for the kind of positive, uh, positive but also truth-centered uh, engagement between Protestants and Catholics? Uh, and what kind of step is that in a... Uh, a, di- a different kind of ecumenical conversation, perhaps. Well, I, 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 I guess I'm part, part of my, my. Oh, I'm, I'm stuttering all over the place. Um, I'd like to think my aim is a little bit lower than that. Um, actually, ah. uh, I would be thrilled if you know people uh, who read this volume said to themselves at the end. Gee, I really need to read some more Joseph Ratzinger. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and so maybe they pick up the trilogy on Jesus or the introduction to Christianity or spirit in the liturgy or eschatology or, or whatever, you know, and and just begin to read him. Mm-hmm. Uh, here is a man whose faith formation is light years removed away from mine. But when I read him, I see someone who is passionately in love with the scriptures as the word of God, who engages with the first centuries of interpretation of those scriptures as uh, a guide to reading those scriptures rightly, who has a deep piety and love for the Lord, uh, someone who, in spite of the fact that we, we have some serious communion-dividing disagreements about fundamental issues, 
someone who is a brother in Christ and who is a, a theologian of the first rank who if if I'm going to be um, a theologian uh, this is someone I, I need to be reading and engaging with uh, in some sense my, my own theological formation is lacking if I'm not reading at least you know the the classic works from this guy uh, and I worry that uh, the Pope Emeritus's reputation as God's Rottweiler for a lot of people means this is someone that we can safely ignore and I, I just don't think that's true so my so my aim's a little bit lower if if people come away from it thinking boy you know I I'm a I'm a Southern Baptist, but I I probably should read the Spirit of the Liturgy, or if uh, you know someone says uh, you know I'm a I'm a Presbyterian I'm a five point Calvinist, but uh, I really should read his uh, his work on the sacraments. Um, uh, I I think that that'd be great. Uh, he just he's he's someone who needs to be read and interacted with uh, on our side of the Tiber. Um, Going forward, you know, if if that leads to to ecumenical engagement, then great. But the the kind of ecumenical engagement I have in mind is the kind of ecumenical engagement that um, you know Richard John Newhouse hoped for before he died, which was, you know, um, engagement in substantive matters about the truth, um, where uh, you know there there might be uh, not so much a uh, repudiation of either of our pasts but a, a sense of of going forward together um, that you know in the providence of God might lead to some surprising conclusions um, but that's you know that that'd be great if that happens but that's that's pretty lofty um, I'll just be happy if you know uh, Amazon's sales of uh, Ratzinger books ticks up a little bit <laughs> awesome yeah that, I, I see that. Instead of the ecumenical conversation, it would be little ecumenical conversations everywhere, beginning with listening through books. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, if if, if some readers could strike up conversations like uh, Carl Truman did with uh, Archbishop Chaput, then, you know, that'd make me really happy. Excellent. Well, one of the ways that... On Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to show hospitality is by giving our guests the last word. So what would you like our listeners to be considering as we wrap up the conversation? Uh, if you haven't read Joseph Ratzinger, then <laughs> then do. Yeah. Um, uh, if, you know, this little book is a window into that in terms of helping you decide where to begin – that's great. But if you haven't read Joseph Ratzinger, then do. Uh, it's worth it. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Perry. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I appreciate your time. Thanks very much, David. I have too. Excellent. Well, 
We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation too, dear listener. We've been uh, speaking with Dr. Tim Perry, the editor of The Theology of Benedict XVI, a Protestant appreciation. This is published by Lexham Press. There will be a link to Lexham Press's page for that book on the show notes for this episode. You'll find those show notes at our blog, christianhumanist.org. If you want to give us feedback on this episode, you can use the comments on the blog for that. You can also send an email direct to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We're on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at CH Radio Network, and we appreciate feedback on all those venues. In the meanwhile, uh, I'm David Grubbs, wishing you all grand weeks. Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.